From Buck Studio at Wisconsin Public Radio, this is Zorba Pastor on your health. I'm Tom Clark here again with Family Doc Zorba Pastor to talk with you about what's new in healthy living, share some down-to-earth advice and great lifestyle tips to help you get the most out of life. If you have a question for the good doc, the number to call is 800-462-7413. And along with your calls, we have some topics to talk about, Zorba. I hope so, Tom. So one topic is, if you can stand on your leg for 10 seconds, that may predict whether or not you're going to live or die over the next 10 years. Isn't that kind of interesting? Really? (laughs) No, no, no. Wait a minute. minute, Here he goes. He's standing up, folks. Let's see. Absolutely. Look at that. The guy. Oh, no, you know what? That's great. About six seconds. (laughs) Hey, that's, you know, I mean, come on. We're we're at that age. (laughs) And then weed-killing chemical found in the majority of U.S. urine samples. We'll talk about whether or not not this weed-killer thing actually has something and what it really actually means. It's interesting research that has environmental. Mental issues. I've got to try standing on my foot again. <laughs> What's our try. special Maybe recipe? Both What's our it. recipe today? Honey, paprika, chicken. If you like chicken, if you like sweet, if you like uh, savory, you will like this recipe. It's wonderful. And you know what's good for you, Tom? What? It's simple. not simple enough for me okay let's get to the phones 1-800-462-7413 is our number that's 800-462-7413 our first caller joins us now from madison wisconsin hi hi thanks for taking my call how can we help so my question is about energy drinks and workout supplements And the effect they can have on teens, specifically on my 16-year-old nephew, who seems to be a bit more of a jerk lately. And I didn't know if it's, (laughs) you know, I mean, there's the hormone thing. So I thought, well, it could be the hormones. And I know at 16, their brain is not working at all and is not really developed. So I thought it could be that. Well, it is working, but it's working in diverse ways. That's it. It is is working. So It works when he sees a girl. So, So. (laughs) right, he sees a girl. So, So do we want to blame his jerkiness on the energy supplement? Or on his Tom, what do you think? Do you think energy? What, what do you think? You got a sixteen-year-old who's acting somewhat like a jerk. Do you think it's what he's drinking? If he's drinking energy supplements, I'll I wouldn't say in, that. No. I, see, I wouldn't say that. He's sixteen, yeah. so energy supplements basically have caffeine. So uh, caffeine. Maybe something minor, but I remember my daughter, my daughter Vanessa, wonderful, wonderful. I have four perfect children who never gave me a bit of trouble. That's what I like. That's what I like to say. And I remember when she was sixteen, and sometimes I would say good morning. She go, oh, you know, she, oh, like you know, like it's an insult. And I, I said to her once, I said, I just want to know, is this a high hormone day or a low hormone day? If it's a high hormone day, then good morning is an insult. If it's a low hormone day, then oh great, Dad, how are you? So no, no. <laughs> Energy supplements are basically caffeinated products. That's what they are. That's all they are. They have a bunch of vitamins and minerals, and they claim it has other things. But basically, it's caffeine that runs it. And can caffeine have an effect on kids? I think it can have a very minor effect. And as for supplements for bodybuilding, those basically contain creatine. A lot of them contain creatine and soy protein and other proteins. But they don't, you know, they don't really affect behavior. So. It wouldn't be the reason why he's mad. He's just mad because he's 16. Uh, he's just mad because he's 16. And, you know, you remember when, well, I vaguely remember when I was 16 because I'm old. But I do remember stomping out of the house one day, having an argument with my father, and walking to my friend Iris' house that was four miles away. I used to drive there and I couldn't take the car. <laughs> and then after I got there, I knew I couldn't walk back home four miles, and I had to call him up to come and pick me up. So that's in my memory. I know that wasn't a single isolated incident, but it is an incident I, it is an incident I remember. Yeah, he's a 16-year-old. Um, now, this is your nephew, did you say? 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was just concerned about the amount of caffeine because he likes the energy drinks and mm-hmm. he likes these things. And well, it, it it's kind of, it's kind of is a concern. It's not a concern in terms of development, but it's really a function of how much caffeine is there. A lot of the supplements about have as much, a lot of the energy drinks have as much caffeine usually as, uh, you know, as we'll say a cup of coffee, but some of them have two or three, they have many more milligrams, two or 300 milligrams of caffeine. So kind of worth talking about, but you know, there are just more important things when you're 16 and behavioral issues are really, I mean, as a parent uh, and as a relative, I mean, I think it's important. I think it's important to call a kid on behavioral issues that are jerky, you know, and say, why are you being jerky? I mean, I think, you know, you have a good relationship with your nephew. Oh yeah, I, I'm like, on what planet is this acceptable? You don't just do these things, but well, no, but, but you know, concerned. but that's but that's an important part of his environment and learning what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And here it is: you have a good relationship with him, and he's acting like a jerk. You got to talk to him about it, right? Because that's how he knows that he's crossed the line. Otherwise, he doesn't know that. And his response may not be, oh, I didn't realize I'm a jerk. But you know something? It really does make a difference in terms of overall perception. Because we know one thing from scientific studies. We know that teenagers pay the most attention to their relatives, mom and dad, aunt and uncle, that are closest to them. And frankly, that's how they guide their behavior. And they'll tell that to you when they're 25. Oh, my God, it's going to be a long 10 years. <laughs> all right, so I don't need to worry about this caffeine thing because it's a lot of caffeine. Not at all. Thanks for your call. <laughs> Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 800-462-7413 is our number. That's 1-800-462-7413. What do you remember as a teenager? That really was something where you upset it, upset your mom. Do you? Is there anything that comes to your mind? Oh no, no, I never did anything. To upset my mom. I was, I was always such a good boy. You know, you know. <laughs> moving on, moving on, <laughs> moving on. We have the balancing topic now, Zorba. Do I have to do this again? Balancing on one leg for ten seconds may predict the likelihood of living. Or dying. If you're mid-age. If you're mid-age. You're beyond mid-age. So it doesn't have the same predictability. But if you're younger than 70 years old, this really does have predictability. So this was the interesting study. So you had Mm -hmm. roughly 1,700 participants. Okay. They were the age of 51 to 75. Okay. That's what their age were. Average age was about 61 at the first checkup. And they were collecting data. So it started in 2008. And they looked at weight Waist side, body fat, and only no. individuals who could walk steady were included in the illness. So nobody who used the cane, nobody who didn't walk steady was actually included. And then they ask everyone, can you stand up for 10 seconds, okay, on one leg? All right, so they, they standardized it. You held, you were stood up on one leg and you put the other leg kind of in back of the first leg, okay? Yeah. You stand up. Yeah. You were given three tries, okay? Oh, if you, if you, well, I still have two more you tries. You still have then. two more tries oh, to good. do it. Now, at the age of 50, roughly, only one in five failed the test, okay? But those people, the people who failed the test one in five, were much more likely to die over the next 10 and 15 years mm-hmm. than the people who couldn't stand up on their leg. So so it showed out, it showed that being able to stand up on your leg may be a predictor of whether or not you're actually going to die over the next 10 or 20 years. Now, when they look back at the data, the people couldn't stand on the leg, on the, on the hand, you know, on the whole rather, were overweight. They weren't necessarily people who exercised, you know, you, other risk factors that were in there. But some of them were not overweight. Some of them did not have major mm-hmm. risk factors. And so it may be that just like we check for blood pressure and cholesterol, you're ready to stand up. I'm going to do it again. Blood pressure and when cholesterol. You're done, I'm going to yeah, do it again. Maybe we should both do it. Blood pressure or cholesterol. Maybe that actually predicted it. So, okay, we're going to stand up for 10 seconds. Carl, can we do this? Okay, so I'm going to say, so Tom and I are going to both stand up for 10 seconds. Well, hold and, on. Yeah, and we're going to see. Are you ready? You to say. You ready? Okay, we're going to start. And Carl is going to keep track of 10 seconds. Carl, are you ready? Are you going to count down or what? Yeah, hang on. Let me pull out my hourglass real quick. Okay, Carl pulled out his hourglass, and we're going to try on one leg. One, two, three, go. Go ahead. See? Oh, you're right. You're doing well. You're doing well. No, no. 
Yeah. You're doing it? Are we ready? It's counting down. Go ahead. Four, One, three, three, two, one. That's it. Time. We got it. I'm going for got, another. You don't have to I'm, do I'm going for another it 10. It doesn't mean you're going to live longer for 20. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? That was exciting. <laughs> so how many more years do I have? <laughs> That's right. You know, this means you're going to live for 10 more years. But, but it does mean something that balance turns out to be an issue that we have to pay attention to. 1-800-462-7413 is our number. 800-462-7413. And now, Zorba, let's see if we can help a listener in Springfield, Missouri. Hi. Hi, it's good to talk to you guys today. How can we help? Well, I'm going to share with you an account of an event, I think a neurological event, and the reason I say share the account is as told to me by my wife, because that's precisely the problem. I have no memory of an Mm eight-hour period of my life. Wow. No memory at all. What happened? About midnight or so, I sat up abruptly in bed. Mm -hmm. My wife recognized immediately that that was not normal. She started asking me some questions, turned on the light, and I started asking her why certain objects that were in the bedroom were there. And these are objects that have been there for 30 years. Mm -hmm. And I would say, well, what is that doing there? And she would answer, and I would respond, okay. And then it would be a looping process, like I absolutely hadn't heard her give me a response. And I would say, well, what is that doing there? And she would answer the same question that I had previously asked, and I just kept continuously looping she thought I was having a stroke called nine one one. Okay. Uh, the response by the EMTs, they thought I was having a stroke as sure. well. Sure. But the interesting thing was, I was completely vocal. I could answer all questions. I had manual dexterity. Mm-hmm. Tied mm-hmm. my shoes. Had no equilibrium loss of any kind. Mm-hmm. So I was carted off to the hospital. Red lights sure. and sirens kept all night. Given every kind right. of alphabet soup. Right. Everything. And they never came up with anything, right? And about two days and $60,000 later, they released me saying, well, we can't find anything wrong with you. Uh, We think you've had something called a transient global global amnesia. amnesia. That's right. That's exactly exactly right. So first of all, transient global amnesia is a sudden temporary interruption, we don't know what it's called, from short-term memory. People are disoriented, they're often confused, but otherwise they're alert, they're attentive. In other words, they act as if everything is normal, but but they're not making memories, and we don't understand what it is. We look for a TIA, which is a transient ischemic attack, like a stroke. We treat that with aspirin. Um, We look to make sure you're not having a stroke. We want to make sure you don't have anything growing in your brain like a tumor. We don't understand it. I've had patients in my practice over the years who have had it. Many of them have had it once, and it never repeated, and we don't know what it is. And your wife was right. Got to get you to the hospital because this could be a serious stroke or a hemorrhage, a subarachnoid hemorrhage or something else going on in the brain. But the answer is when we don't find what it is, it becomes TGA, transient global amnesia. That's right. And $60,000 later, you're right. They did a whole bunch, whole bunch of tests. Yeah. Did they put you on aspirin, by the way? Uh, no. They, mm-hmm. Following all of these tests, they then put me on a heart monitor for two weeks, okay. which was also interesting mm-hmm. because they thought my heart rate was too low. Well, I'm well that's, that's of age, and my well. heart rate has always been in the upper 40s and 50s. Mm-hmm. Are you, do you exercise? Is that why it's so, or is that just your natural heart rate? Well, that's interesting, too. I've ridden 100,000 miles on my bicycle in the last 10 years. I, I, think, we, 30- I think we would call that exercise. If you've, ridden a hundred, <laughs> if you've ridden 100,000 miles on your bike in your lifetime, we would definitely call that an exercise. And your low pulse is probably the result of exercise. Um, they were right about that, though. They wanted to make sure you didn't have something called sick sinus syndrome, where all of a sudden you have a low pulse, uh, what we call bradycardia, where your pulse is low and it produces that. So they were right. That was a good thing as part of the workup. But what you're left with is TGA, transient global amnesia, and we don't know what it causes it. 
may never happen again does not mean you're going to have a stroke. Well, I told my wife here just recently that Dr. Zorba would give me some heads up on this. So I appreciate the call, and I listen to you regularly when I'm out riding those 31 miles a day every day of my life. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. And keep riding. It's good, it's good for your health. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. You're welcome. You take care. Bye-bye. Bye. So transient global amnesia is not a common event. It's an uncommon event, but it can be very scary if it happens to you. Yeah, really interesting. 1-800-462-7413 is our number. 1-800-462-7413. Now, before the break, Zorba, as you know, we got so many questions from our wonderful listeners, but we also get calls from listeners who just want to share a comment or a health tip. So it's time again for the segment we call Caller Comments. This is a bunch of caller comments. People calling us with their health tips. Thanks. We appreciate it. Okay, Zorba. First, let's hear from a listener in Hillsborough, Wisconsin. The lady that had the smelly navel. I have been using milk of magnesia for... 20 years plus for underarm deodorant. The way I do it is I take a bottle, I pour the water off. When I pour the water off, all you have left pretty much is the milk of mag in the bottom of the bottle. Pour that into a dish, let it dry to a certain extent so that it takes two or three days so that you can dip it out with your finger and it's kind of like putty or a little looser than putty. And then you use that as a deodorant or antiperspirant. And it works wonderfully. It works so well. Thank you very much for your program. Talk to you later. Bye. You know, that that is a great idea. There are a number of people who, uh, if we if we look at deodorant and antiperspirant, so an antiperspirant has an aluminum compound, and most people tolerate it, some people don't. It keeps people from sweating. And uh, an antiperspirant, antiperspirant, with that aluminum compound is just basically a perfumed uh, spray or a perfumed liquid that goes on you. But this is a great, more natural way of using milk and magnesia in a paste-like substance. I've never heard about that. But that is an excellent tip for either underarm stuff or, in our case, the smelly navel. Okay. You know, it sounds like a, a murder mystery, the mystery of the smelly navel. It sounds like a lot of trouble <laughs> to me. Hey, well, you know what? You you don't have a smelly navel. So for you, it doesn't make a difference. Okay. <laughs> now, let's hear from a listener in Spokane, Washington. Hey, Zora, is about leg cramps. Charcoal or zinc. What I do when I get up to pee at 4 a.m., I'm starting to get little leg cramps, which will be worse if I don't do anything about it when I get up later, is uh, scrape the tongue, brush the teeth and tongue, put some like a quarter, eighth of a teaspoon charcoal, activated charcoal on my tongue. It's, it seems to be related to the microbiota in the tongue or something. And zinc also works. Thanks. You know, I'll tell you something. Leg cramps are a big issue, and we don't understand them. And I'll tell you, Western medicine does not have an answer for leg cramps. For years, we used quinine, and then the Fed said, let's do a double-bind controlled study. And the answer was, didn't do squat, you know, nothing at all. And so this drug, Quinon, was taken off the market. And people who have leg cramps at night are really bothered from this. So that is a great folk remedy I think people should pay attention to. And if it works for you, it might work for others. And finally, Zorba, here's a caller in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Hi, guys. It, it's actually um, garbanzo, not garabonzo <laughs> on garbanzo beans. And then also Tom had said uh, Wilfred Brimley, and it's Wilford. So make that change for me, please. Thank you. So it's Wilfred Garbanzo. It's Wilfred. You have to say Wilfred, and I have to say Garbanzo. I don't know if I'll ever say that again. Yeah, well, you know what? 
You never know. But if you are, <laughs> hopefully you'll say it the right way. So, more, more of your calls to come, more of your emails. And more we'll, of your corrections to come, too. There's no doubt we'll about that. We'll be cooking up some honey paprika chicken. All of that coming up on Zorba Pastor on Your Health from PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. I'm Clark with Family Doc Zorba Pastor here on Zorba Pastor on Your Health. That number again, if you have a question for Zorba, 800-462-7413. But Zorba, before our next call, honey, paprika, chicken. Do you like chicken? I do. Yeah, I like chicken a lot. You know, chicken used to be an expensive, it used to be very expensive back in the 30s. I mean, when Hoover said a chicken, there'll be a chicken in every pot, it was a premium meat. Mm-hmm. It was a premium meat. And uh, and over the over time, now it's not a premium meat. Now, you know, it has become a different thing. But there really is a difference between chicken thighs and chicken breast. I mean, chicken breast, you know, is dry. You've got to make sure that you marinate it the right way, whereas chicken thighs have more fat in it, but it's more moist. And that's what we use in this particular recipe. And I love – I really moved over to chicken thighs from chicken breast because I think it's a tastier cut of meat. Mm-hmm. Um, does Monica make much in the way of chicken? She makes stuff that has pieces of chicken in it. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, chicken. I mean, it's an excellent protein. I yeah. mean, it's much better, you know, much better than beef as a My protein. My wife is the best cook in the world. No, she is. She's a great cook. So, start out with one pound of boneless, skinless chicken thighs cut into bite-sized pieces. A pound of chicken thighs cut into bite-sized pizzas. Now, you can use chicken breast. That would be okay, too, but chicken thighs would be my preference. Okay. A half teaspoon of salt, kosher salt or regular salt. Half a little tea, salt. Quarter teaspoon of ground black pepper. Don't use it out of a container. It really is much better to grind your pepper. I also have a pepper grinder that I really, really love so that I can sort of get the ground pepper all at one time. But if you don't have a pepper grinder, you got to have one because because it's much better. Carl, do you grind your own pepper at home or do you use it out of a sort of a shaker? We have a pepper grinder. Yeah. Two tablespoonfuls of potato starch. You could use cornstarch, but potato starch will make it better. So I would say potato starch, uh, two tablespoonfuls, or cornstarch. Two big tea potato starch. Or Um, cornstarch. Or cornstarch. A tablespoonful of a veggie oil, any kind of vegetable oil. Big tea vegetable oil. Three tablespoonfuls of honey. Any kind of honey that you like would be good honey tablespoonful of fresh lemon juice. Now, if you're going to use reconstituted lemon juice, I would highly recommend you take it out of the freezer. It's not reconstituted. It's frozen uh, lemon juice. It's a good substitute when you don't have a fresh lemon. I always have a fresh lemon in my refrigerator. It tastes much better. Mm, A big tea lemon juice. That's right. And you got to make it just before. And a teaspoon of smoked paprika. Regular paprika is okay, but smoked paprika will give it a completely different taste. Little tea, smoked paprika. So it doesn't have much. It has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. It's got just eight, eight things. It's not hard. You could do this, Tom. Cut the chicken into bite-sized pieces. Generally, salt and pepper them. Dust it with potato starch. That's what you do. Dust it with potato starch. Then heat a frying pan over medium heat. Then add the veggie oil. I would use a nonstick frying pan with this. Swirl the pan. Add the chicken in a single layer. Fry the chicken until it's brown and crispy on one side. You've got to cook it until it's thoroughly cooked through. So while the chicken is browning, make the sauce by whisking together the honey, lemon juice, and smoked paprika until it's combined. When the chicken is cooked through, use a paper towel and tongs to soak up as much of the oil in the pan as possible. You can first tip the pan to one side to make the oil pull. And once you've soaked it up, move it around the pan with another paper towel. Once again, to soak up that excess oil. Then give the sauce a stir, add it to the chicken, tossing the chicken evenly over the sauce. When it's done, there's very little liquid left and the chicken is glossy and well-coated and you've got a delicious honey, paprika, 
chicken. It is wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. You can tell I really like this recipe. It sounds good. Yeah, I know. I, I, I know. You could uh, give it a try. Give it a try. Maybe one. Uh, no, give it to Monica. Give it Monica. a try. Like give it I'm going to do it. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Sorry. Didn't mean to push that. So okay. uh, if you're not like Tom and you would like a copy of this recipe, don't write us, but go to our website. That's ZorbaPastor.org. You can find this recipe, other recipes, pictures of Tom, pictures of me. That's ZorbaPastor.org. Or don't forget, you can find us through Facebook. 1-800-462-7413 is our number, 800-462-7413. And Zorba, our next caller is a listener in Knoxville, Tennessee. Hi. Hi, how are you? Fine, how can we help? My husband has gout, and I, you know, I really am wanting him to see a dietitian because he's on his second and third medicine, mm. and I feel like maybe a dietitian could help. So I wanted to know your thoughts on that. First of all, how long has he had gout? Well, he's on his third attack in the mm-hmm. past year or two. Okay. So third attack in the last year. Does he take a daily pill? He's right now taking um, two different medicines. Mm-hmm. What's he? Is he taking allopurinol? Do you know? Do you yes, know what? Yes, med- he is. And what's the other he's- medicine he's taking? Meloxicam. Okay, meloxicam. So meloxicam is an anti-inflammatory. Allopurinol is a drug to reduce uric acid. Do you happen to know how much he's on, by the way? Uh, He takes 100 milligrams of allopurinol. Okay, he is on a low dose of allopurinol. That is not a high dose. Uh, the okay. fact The fact is, if he's still having attacks, he should be on 300 to 600 milligrams of allopurinol. There's no doubt about it. 100 milligrams is a low dose. 300 milligrams is a much higher dose. The goal is to push that uric, the uric acid level down to 5.0. That's the goal, at least below 6, but preferably 5.0. And the most common dose for allopurinol is 300 milligrams daily. We often start out with 100 milligrams, ramp it up to 300 milligrams. And if that fails, you can actually go up to 600 milligrams a day. And if that doesn't work, there's another drug, Fabuxostat, which is under the name brand Uloric, U-L-O-R-I-C. And that drug is 40 to 80 milligrams a day. And we use that drug if the allopurinol doesn't work. And frankly, uh, uh, with that, along with another drug called colchicine, and we can get rid of gout attacks tremendously. Diet plays a minimal role. We used to think the diet played a maximal role, but it turns out it doesn't play as much of a role as the medications. Seeing a dietitian and looking at it, I mean, does he eat lobster every day? Does he eat shellfish every day? I'm sure he doesn't. We know, by the way, that sweetened drinks uh, you know, such as Coca-Cola, any kind of a carbonated beverage, which is sweetened, is more likely to give a gout attack. Uh, but full disclosure, for years, I did research on the gout medicine medication called Uloric. We did it in our office. I was part of a foundation called the Dean Foundation. Uh, full disclosure, I got paid for doing the research. I have to say these things because I want to explain it. I don't get any money from the drug. I'm not a drug man, But But the allopurinol is what you want to start with because that is a generic and it's cheap. And he's not on a high enough dose. And if he's had tax, he needs to be on that with or without the drug colchicine. And that will reduce his attacks. Okay. Well, that that helps. He he took um, colchicine, but it increased his cholesterol. So they quickly moved him mm-hmm. to alpurinol. Uh, and what kind of a, I'm glad to let hear. Me, let me know about the, what kind of a doctor does he go to? Let's see. What's that called? A DO? Uh-huh. I, I want to tell you something. I don't think that colchicine increases cholesterol. I don't think there's any evidence of that at all. Zero evidence. Okay. So I don't agree okay. with that. I mean, he may have had an increase for cholesterol because of his diet, because of exercise, because of whether or not he had fish or fish oil. Uh, and it may be that he needs to be on a statin. But there's no evidence that colchicine increases cholesterol at all. So okay. I'm questioning the doctor that you're going to. Because as I said, he's not on a high enough dose of allopurinol. And allopurinol, often with a daily colchicine, if that fails, will do the tricks. So okay. you got to go okay. back and question that doctor a lot. And um, and if the doctor says, I don't think he needs a higher dose of allopurinol, my recommendation was see another doctor. Okay. Okay. Well, that helps. And I'm just from the nagging wife perspective, I'm glad to hear that the diet is 
you know, because that's really the stereotype of, oh, his diet is really bad. Right. No, no. Really it's not that bad. But, but you he, know, some, I cook and he eats. No, no, no. The diet is OK. But I have to tell you something. The nagging wife is actually the wife that is looking into his best interest. So you can now go back and say, hey, I called up this radio doctor and found out you're not on the maximal dose of medication. You need to push that uric acid down so you stop getting gout attacks. We can get rid of 95 percent of gout attacks, if not more with the right medications. And let me tell you something, these medications, especially allopurinol, which came out maybe 45 or 50 years ago, changed the course of gout. Because with diet, you can only bring it down by maybe one point. With allopurinol, you can often get four or five points on uric acid. And that is a godsend to people with gout. So yes, thanks for your call. Very, You're, very painful. Thank you, you so are, you much. Are gonna I help. It. You are going to help your husband. And you know something? You're going to get points. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate the, the help. I will pass it on to my husband. You're welcome. You take care. Thanks for your call. We appreciate that call at 800-462-7413. You know, sometimes it's important to talk about who your healthcare provider is, because they have to get a second opinion. And I think this is a very good example. I've done research on gout. I've been very involved with gout. And he's on a subtherapeutic dose of a drug and is suffering from that. So health literacy, the important part of health literacy is you want to gather information from other sources other than your healthcare provider. She went to the, she listened to the radio. She listens to public radio. She asked a question. Other people are going to listen to this. And there will be other people who have gout out there who may also then question their provider and say, am I on the maximal dose of medication? And the provider may look at it and say, I hadn't thought about that. Maybe you should be on a higher dose. And that's why we do the show. Yeah, that's a, that's a good thing. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, we have a voicemail now, Zorba, from New York. Yeah, I had a little two cents to put in for uh, Dr. Zorba Pastor. He, um, he was talking about vaping, about the uh, use of e-cigarettes and uh I started smoking when I was 16 and all that other stuff, and I switched to vaping the last couple of years, and my lung capacity is better and everything's been better. So I was wondering if he could maybe touch on that, see if he has any information on why that happens. Undoubtedly, vaping is better than a tobacco product. No doubt about it. And uh, and people who want to, all of the, uh, the centers to try to reduce tobacco dependence, look at vaping and try to say, where are we at with this? Well, first of all, we've got to look at it from a young person's point of view. Vaping should not be done. We've got to make sure that the vaping is not done in kids who are in middle school and high school. And it's been exploding there because Juul and other companies have had products that are specifically targeted for kids. They're sweet, tasty products to get kids hooked on vaping. So let's put that to the side. That's really important. We've got to keep our young children from vaping. And the tobacco companies have jumped on the bandwagon and say, hey, vaping is not as bad as tobacco. And the answer is, they're right. It's probably not as bad as tobacco, but it's bad. Now, from a point of view of an older adult, meaning over the age of 18 or over the age of 21, which is when vaping products should be available, I'm up for the 21, not for the 18 to get vaping products. I think it is much better. And I've told people who can't give up smoking, go to vaping. And if they succeed in going to vaping, that actually is better for your lungs. And you know what? Your lung capacity is better. If you can stop vaping, that would be great. But frankly, if you can't stop vaping, it's much better than regular tobacco products. So keep doing what you are doing. I don't even know what vaping is. Well, vaping is an electronic uh, product that looks like a cigarette. It has nicotine in it for the most part. And it's something that people take in and they can get off smoking. And then hopefully they'll get off vaping. And that's what vaping is. It's another way of actually delivering nicotine into the body. And for people who are addicted to nicotine, vaping is definitely better. I, I really do think it's better. We don't know what the 20-year long-term practice is, but we know that tobacco products are bad. Mm. Uh, before the break, Zorba, I hope you remembered to pick up your black robe from the dry cleaners. Time again for Judge Zorba. Okay, Zorba, this case comes to us from a listener named Lynn in Viola, Wisconsin. I was recently diagnosed with carpal tunnel, and I'm having surgery very soon. My family is encouraging me to file workers' comp. 
I've been working doing typing at a call center for nine years, and I've done typing office work for almost 20 years. I was told typing doesn't cause carpal tunnel and that there's no scientific basis. I thought it was repetitive motion disorder, and that's why we have ergonomics, wrist pads, by our keyboards and mouse pads. So I'm confused. Can you clarify for me, please? Well, first of all, I always tell people if you have a question about workman's comp, I'll come down, file it. There's no doubt about it. I just came down with my gavel. And the reason is you don't know really what the workman's comp people are going to do. So filing it is not an issue. It's easy to do. Now, uh, it is from repetitive injury. And whether or not typing is part of that, Good question. I think the jury is sort of out on it. One of the reasons that we put pads down when we're typing is if you have your if your hand on too solid a surface, you're more likely to have carpal tunnel syndrome. Whether or not you're actually going to get workman's comp from it, insurance company, they'll make their their decision. But I think you should definitely file it. And 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 by the way, I want to tell you the gavel that I just used was presented to me by, with sincere appreciation and recognition from somebody who was the oracle and presiding officer of the royal neighbor camp during his last term. He got the gavel from the board of supreme directors of the royal neighbors of America. (laughs) His name was John D. Scribbins, and I've never thanked him for the gavel. So, John, if you're listening... Thank you much for the Royal Neighbors Gavel. I have been using it faithfully for years, and I appreciate it. It works quite well. And listen to it. That's right. <laughs> it works. <laughs> Do you need Judge Zorba to help settle a case? Just post your questions on our Facebook page or send us an email at Zorba at WPR.org. We have more of your calls coming up, another topic to discuss, and Zorba will be answering more of your emails. All coming up. On Zorba Pastor on Your Health from PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. Tom Clark with Family Doc Zorba Pastor here on Zorba Pastor on Your Health. That number is 800-462-7413 if you have a question for Zorba. But Zorba, before our next call, weed-killing chemical found in majority of U.S. urine samples. Right. Kind of of interesting, and uh, it's a controversial issue, and I'll explain where the controversy is. But anyway, this is part of the National Health and Nutrition uh, Examination Survey, very important survey where they actually ask people what they eat and so on. And they looked in at a chemical. The chemical is glyphosate. G-O-Y-P-H-O-S-A-T-E, glyphosate, which is actually a derivative of a weed-killing chemical. And they found, they looked at urine samples roughly, and they found that in around 1,800 of the urine samples of 2,300 samples, uh, which is representative of the population at large all the way through the country, about a third of the samples had this chemical in the urine when they analyzed it. And these were basically in kids from the age of 6 to 18. So this was urine samples that are looked at. Now, glyphosate is the most widely used herbicide in the country, and there's very little data on it. It's used in Roundup. Roundup is the most widely used brand in the country for killing uh, weeds, basically in corn and in other things. Uh, Bayer is a company that bought Monsanto back in 2018, and they inherited basically all all of the controversy concerning that. The Supreme Court last year rejected a bid by Bayard to cut down, sort of shut down thousands of lawsuits about these weed killer. And the question is whether or not this is causing lymphoma, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, whether or not there are a couple of cases, there were a case in California where the jury said, yes, it causes non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. But frankly, we really don't know. 
And that's the problem. So the CDC is looking at glycophase, uh, glyphosate, whether or not these levels should be regulated because it's generally considered that maybe the exposure is low and it doesn't mean anything. Uh, but it reminds us that the chemicals that we use for our food may affect us and may not affect us. And it's not a small issue. And the jury is out on it. So that's why people then go to organic foods. Do, does Monica shop for organic foods? You um, know? I think so. You think so. Some, well, yeah. but that's, and that's because organic foods are saying, you know, generally if you have organic foods, we're not using chemicals to actually grow it. And it's been a movement that's really been going on and gained a lot of steam. I mean, once Walmart's having started having organic foods, you realize it's gained a lot of steam, but it's still the minority of foods in most grocery stores. So this is troubling data. It shows that what we feed our children when they're younger may make a difference when they're older. And uh, I think the jury is out on whether or not they this actually is hazardous to human health, but if you think it's important to you, shop organic. Well, should we or shouldn't we? I mean, well, I don't have an answer to this. The answer is I don't know. We're finding it in the food course sources, so it means that it's if it's in the if it's basically in the urine of children and urine of young adults, that means it's gone through the body, and we can still find it in the body. Does that mean it's actually affecting the human body in an adverse way? And right now, the CDC doesn't have an answer. We know that certain forms of cancer are on the rise in this country, but we don't know the cause. So. If you're a parent who's concerned, that means you shop organic whenever possible because it's less likely your child is going to have this in the urine and may not affect them during the important part of their growth. 1-800-462-7413 is our number. 1-800-462-7413. And now, Zorba, let's see if we can help a listener in Branson, Missouri. Hi. Much for taking my call. Sure. How can we help? Well, I went to the doctor. Oh, now it's been four weeks ago, and they did some blood tests. And she was running over my blood tests and said, My blood is too thick. She didn't get too, you know, and we talked about it. And she gave me, oh, some statins and um, nanoproxen for my hip, which is another problem altogether. But, and I said to her, I said, Well, what do we do about thick blood? She said, well, she wants me to take an aspirin a day. And I said, well, what about giving a pint of blood? And she said, that's really a good idea, actually. And I don't know if you ever heard of giving blood to make your blood thinner. Well, first of all, if you have thick blood, there's a, a disease called hemochromatosis uh, that oh. can be caused by thick blood in the liver. And then there's polycythemia vera, which means, you know, which is which is also a problem. Um if she thinks your blood is too thick, in other words, you have too many red cells, you need to see a hematologist. You need to see Uh-oh. a hematologist who looks at this. And because, because some people who actually produce too much blood have to have regular blood taken out on a regular basis. Or what happens is they have iron stores in their body and that uh-huh. are too high and that builds up in the liver and that can actually cause a problem. So Uh-oh. if your blood count is too high, you need yeah. a referral to a hematologist. That's what you need. Okay. She's Uh-oh. right in okay. one way that if your blood count is too high, you you know, uh, you know, giving blood at the Red Cross is a good idea. But frankly, uh, you need to have a diagnosis of why that blood count is too high. And that's oh, okay. that's what you need to do. So what I would do is I would call your, you know, I, uh, I'd call your doctor back and I would say, look, I spoke to this radio doctor and he said my blood count is too high. I should see a hematologist and have them refer you because you've got to find out the reason. And the reason is not there's a, there's a treatment for it, and that's what you need. Oh, okay, but letting blood is like. You know, fourteen eighty-seven. Yeah, right. No, it is. And letting blood is like fourteen eighty-seven. That's exactly right. The year the bloodletting started. It probably started in about you know five hundred BC when they started letting blood. That is true. But we have a better method of doing it. We don't just now in the fourteen hundreds. They just kind of slashed you and let the blood come out. We've got methods that are not as painful. But yes, it's 
It is. I'm glad we came away a long way. We've come that. a long way from the 1400s. Yeah, I didn't. That's even before I went to medical school. Uh, <laughs> but, but, but yes, it seems like an odd treatment. But you want to have a diagnosis first. So okay, uh, very good. So you need well, you need I to see. will talk to her about that, and I see her tomorrow. So that's good. You let me know today. Excellent, excellent. Well, th- thanks for your call. Bring up. You brought up a very and good point you. for our listeners. You take care. Of okay. Okay. Very good. Thank you, Doctor. You're welcome. You take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. So the issue was important for I just call her because if she does have polycythemia vera, where you produce too many red blood cells, there is a treatment that is worthwhile to take because otherwise you can have long-term problems that can actually be very, very serious. So it really was a good call because it'll influence her to talk to her doctor tomorrow when she sees her. And once again, that's why we do this show. Mm. 800-462-7413 is our number. 1-800-462-7413. Okay, Zorba, we love when our listeners chime in to drop some knowledge or lend their expertise to the show. The first listener tip came from Kathy in Houston, Texas. Dear Dr. Zorba, I have always had a problem swallowing capsules. They would get stuck crosswise in my throat, and I'd cough and hack until I coughed them up. Then I read that if you turn your head sharply to the left before swallowing the capsule, it will slide right down. It works. Since I've been doing that, I've had no problem swallowing my capsules. Excellent. Excellent tip. Very, very good. The other tip to do is don't use a glass of water. Use bottled water or whatever you're drinking because when you use a bottle, you have to tip your head back more and that opens up your gullet. Uh. So don't drink out of a glass or a cup. Drink out of a bottle. Excellent tip. Left-hand side. Turn your head. I like it. And finally, Zorba, this tip came from a listener named Bill who writes... Regarding the woman who was dealing with chronic cold sores, when she asked about topical pain relief, you suggested that you did not have a good answer. I'm offering that using baby numbing gel on the cold sore does effectively stem the pain. Yes, the teething medicine for babies will do the job. At least it did for me. Love your show and the hilarious batter between Tom and you. Well, I think that that is a great point. I didn't have a good answer, meaning there's nothing that I felt really was going to work all the time. But I didn't tell her at that time that she should use baby oils, baby stuff like Numzid to use on a cold sore. Great idea. Thank you for the tip. Yeah, hilarious matter. Usually it's just I'm fumbling around trying to figure out what to say. I'm I'm, I'm glad she enjoys it. Do you have a helpful tip for the show? Just post it on our Facebook page or send us an email at... Zorba at WPR.org. Okay, Zorba. Let's hear another voicemail. This one from a caller in Illinois. Wondering if there's any medicinal cannabis for dementia patients. Good point. Well, we know that dementia patients do not respond well to benzodiazepines such as alprazolam or Valium. We know they don't work well. We also know that antipsychotics do not work well with people with dementia. There's very little research on cannabis like gummies. And the reason is the feds consider the research to be the same as heroin. And once they lift that, once the DEA says, which it should say because it's really stupid and dumb to think of cannabis, especially since it's legal in many places like Illinois, the same as heroin, which by the way is not legal anywhere in the country, obviously – Uh, that they would allow us to do research to find out whether it's worthwhile. Now, you've got to be careful with people with dementia because if you inebriate them too much, they're more likely to fall and have problems. So if you're going to try something with, we'll say, a gummy with, in this case, her mother who has dementia, you want to use a very, very, very low-level gummy. They usually, I think, about 10 milligrams, 5 or 10 milligrams. I would take a 5-milligram one and I would cut it in quarters and see whether or not it makes a difference. The answer is we don't have research. Do you want to try it? Try it and see if it makes a difference. 
Our number is 800-462-7413. That's 800-462-7413. Before we call it a day, Zorba, let's do the segment where we feature what our wonderful listeners are writing on the Zorba Pastor on Your Health Facebook page. This is called Facebook Feedback. Facebook Feedback. Okay, Zorba, you recently posted a photo of you and me dressed to the nines at a recent theater show we went to. <laughs> we were dressed to the nines. We what? saw, well, the show was, it was about the Temptations, Ain't Too Proud. It was at Overture Center, oh, yeah, and yeah, we both yeah, loved yeah, it. It was yeah. a great, great musical. Those yeah. guys were amazing. Men and women on stage were amazing. Yeah. yeah. You were very handsome, and I had this face, this mask over my I face. Had, I had a glittery, I had, I had a, a glittery, wonderful sports coat that Ben Sindarin had given me that was sort of blue lame, not gold lame. I had glasses on and I had a hat. I was trying to look as cool as I could. And you looked uh, handsome in your own way. <laughs> <laughs> I look better with my face covered up. I, I know that. Janice in St. Paul, Minnesota wrote, this is funny. I had a blouse just like your shirt. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Rick adds, Zorba, I thought that was Mick Jagger for a second. (laughs) And finally, Jerry in Knoxville, Tennessee adds, Zorba, I think that is you on the left doing the men in black thing. (laughs) And Tom looking like Einstein. Einstein? (laughs) I don't think so. Thanks to our wonderful listeners for all all the Facebook comments. And, of course, you can always send us an old-fashioned email at zorba at wpr.org. See you next week, Zorba. Stay well, Tom. If you missed anything during the show or just want to stream the show online anytime, visit us on the web at zorbapastry.org or, of course, through Facebook. And don't forget, you can call us anytime to leave us your question at 800-462-7413. Zorba Pastor on Your Health is a production of Wisconsin Public Radio, It's not intended as a medical diagnosis, so please do check with your doc. Our executive producer is Carl Christian. Our technical director is Brad Colbert. Our theme music is by Leo and Ben Sedrin. For Zorba Pastor, I'm Tom Clark. Asking you to join us on the next Zorba Pastor on your health. Did you miss something on today's show? Simply go to ZorbaPastor.org to catch up on all things Zorba. There you will find recipes from the show, links to the Facebook page, Zorba's healthy living articles, and you can subscribe to the weekly podcast. On the web, that's ZorbaPastor.org.